Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, the show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. Okay, hello everyone. I'm Ethan, and we're back for another episode of Changing the Climate. I am very excited and lucky to have Mr. Aaron Citron on the show. So Aaron, thanks so much for being here, man. Thank you for having me. Honestly, it's an absolute pleasure, as always, every single week. And we love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing today. Sure. So um, happy to be here. Uh, so I am a, a policy advisor for the Nature Conservancy here in Colorado. Um, I, I grew up in, in Tucson, Arizona in the desert, which I still love. Um, and uh, I think that growing up somewhere where you kind of have to search out green places and search out water in the desert uh, always uh, drew me towards working in, in, uh, in nature, which might seem like an odd connection, but um, I, uh, you know, went to school back East in Georgia, always had an interest in, in heading back West, um, went to law school again, not really wanting to be a litigator, but wanting to get into the conservation space. And uh, ended up working for a land trust in Tucson, Arizona, an organization called Arizona Land and Water Trust, trying to figure out how to um, address water scarcity issues in Arizona with, with farmers and ranchers. Spent a number of years there trying to identify opportunities for um, uh, essentially transactional water projects that uh, there's a long history of in the Pacific Northwest and more and more here in Colorado, but lacking in Arizona for a number of reasons. Um, after a few years of that, realized, you know, you can only do so much um, working through contracts and agreements. Sometimes you have to fundamentally address the policy barriers. I uh, was lucky enough to get a job working for Environmental Defense Fund in Boulder, um, working on Colorado River policy issues. Awesome. Basin-wide, Arizona, Colorado, and now I'm at the Nature Conservancy working on our state legislative agenda. But obviously, my, my background is really in, in water rights, water law. Um, but really excited to be expanding my focus to cover our um, our climate agenda these days. Definitely. Thank you so much. And where did you go to law school? I went to law school at University of Arizona in Tucson. So I, I see. Uh, yeah, I left Tucson, went back east to Emory University in Georgia, and then uh, decided to come home to uh, my hometown school. Um, so love it. I was always a supporter of the basketball team, and now it's actually my alma mater. Let's go, man. Very, very cool. So yeah, obviously, we're here to talk about nature uh, conservation today. And I'm very excited to discuss the topic. I think it's really relevant, not only to climate change, but to just kind of fostering a better society in general. I think uh, the relationship we have with nature is a bit disconnected at this point. So let's let's just begin by talking about what does it really mean to conserve nature? How can we conserve nature? And why does it really matter in the first place? Yeah, and I think... Um... The, the terminology is important. Um, mm -hmm. And when you talk about, quote unquote, conservation, um, different definitions, I think, are, are acceptable. I mean, people can talk about conservation, they can talk about preservation, I think they all mean something slightly different. But the way mm -hmm. I think about it, um, it, it is uh, about not just putting a, you know, a fence around a property, you know, we, we have an amazing national park system here. And, and it, it's, you know, it, it's something to be respected and envied. And those are places where we said, this is, you know, uh, the cream of the crop. Let's, you know, put a wall, not really a wall, but put a fence around it and say, only, you know, this will be protected for nature. Um, we also have other public lands, our forests, our Bureau of Land Management lands that are managed in different ways. I think all of that is critical. At the Nature Conservancy and in my past work at um, the Land Trust in Tucson, we also focus a lot on private land conservation, um, which allows for compatible uses. Um, and so to me, conservation is really focused on, on management as much as it is saying, this is wilderness, you know, you can't touch it. That's fine for some places, but, um, you know, people also want to be able to to recreate, they want to be able to get in and use the resources. Um, and there is absolutely, I think, a need for um, a variety of different um, 
tools to build up this, you know, conserved landscape. Um, mm -hmm. And we're having this conversation at the state and the federal level through this 30 by 30 initiative, um, which is really focused on conserving 30% of the lands and waters by 2030. And I think that's critical. It's, it's not that 30% of the world will be a wilderness area. That's both unrealistic and probably unproductive, but how can we make sure that 30% of the land is managed in a way that has a, a benefit to nature and hopefully a compatible use for people? Um, yeah, so I think it's an interesting question and, and I'm sure others would have very different perspectives on the definitions. Yeah, I mean, as as we naturally do, that's why we have discussions, and we'll we'll get into talking about the thirty by thirty a bit a bit more. And I think now that I've studied the topic a bit more, I think it's absolutely essential. But Aaron, why why do I think it's essential? Why why do we need to conserve things? You know, is is nature really a finite resource? Like, for example, coal or, or diamond? Are we going to run out of nature? You know, I wish I had good statistics for you. <laughs> uh, and, and I will, because I know there are numbers. I've got some. About, you probably have them. I didn't, didn't do my research to that level. No worries, um, man. But yeah, we are quote unquote running out at least. It also depends on the scale, right? If you're looking globally versus nationally versus the state of Colorado versus a specific kind of eco region, it matters. Um, so, you know, I, I um, once you have, uh, let's say, disturbed certain landscapes, they don't just return, right? Mm -hmm. uh, especially in an arid climate like Colorado in the Western US. Um, it's not like you, you know, there's a lot of people that criticized. Uh, there are certainly areas that have been overgrazed. I think grazing can be managed in a way that's compatible with landscapes. But for a number of years, people certainly overgrazed lands and it isn't you take the cows off the land doesn't just recover if you overgraze it if you appropriately mm -hmm. graze it maybe so yeah it, it's very tough to get um you know a, an ecosystem reestablished in an arid landscape so i i do think it's something we need to focus on um partially because you know i think we i care about critters i care about animals i care mm -hmm. about um having uh, natural systems be intact, but there's also a lot of benefits to our day-to-day -day life that we don't think about. Um, I know that when I was in Arizona, we focused on a number of different um, um, bonding efforts at the county level in Pima County um, to raise public dollars to conserve lands. And the way that they got voters to approve it is talking about the um, the water supply benefits, that protecting these lands ensures that our groundwater aquifers are replenished, protecting these lands, make sure that our watersheds are healthy. And that's, that's true here as well, um, is that there's both a kind of you know, spiritual connection to nature, making sure animals are happy and healthy, but also we're able to maintain our resources through our, our water supply. More and more, we're learning about the potential of our lands to um, store carbon. So all these things that are really critical to humans um, are also coming out of our conservation of nature. Um, whether or not we're going to quote run out of it, mm -hmm. I think water certainly there's a scarcity issue. Yeah. Um, land, um, yeah, we do need to make sure that we're on top of managing our lands in a way that's compatible. Sure. I guess what just comes to mind for me is I've been studying the, the Holocene extinction extensively recently and, and then statistics like 75% of insect biomass disappearing in like 20 years. Yeah, guys, don't quote me for sure. But if you look it up, you can see like all the bugs are dying. And then the, the other key indicator is amphibian populations have decreased drastically, which is usually directly correlated with environmental degradation. So that's just the kind of stuff that's on my mind, why I'm so happy to have a representative from the Nature Conservancy come on and talk about these issues. So Aaron, what is the Nature Conservancy? Sure. So the Nature Conservancy is a, uh, is a nonprofit conservation organization. Um, we work in every U.S. state and over 70 countries. Uh, our mission uh, is to um, uh, conserve the lands and waters on which all life depends. Sounds um, good to me. Which, yeah, it's pretty broad. Everybody can agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, historically, uh, the Nature Conservancy was... Uh, very much a land trust. And a land trust is an organization that uses, you know, uh, real estate market-based methods to protect land, as it sounds like, to say, oh, okay, that land is important. We will buy it or we will 
pay you to, uh, we'll buy the, the a conservation easement, uh, which is basically buying the right to develop the land. Um, and, and the organization has evolved over the last, um, well, in, in Colorado, we're about to celebrate our 55th anniversary. So um, yeah, it's so very exciting. So um, we've evolved beyond that. We still absolutely focus on land protection. Um, as you may or may not know, just last year, um, the state of Colorado added its latest state park, Fisher's Peak, down in Trinidad. Um, and that, huh. that land was acquired initially by the Nature Conservancy and the Trust for Public Land and was then transferred to the state as a state park. So we still do that kind of work. Um, and we also work with private landowners on um, conservation easements, management agreements, you know, allow them to continue to ranch um, and to ensure that that land is never developed, to make sure that they have an incentive to keep doing what they're doing in a way that's compatible with nature. Um, and now, um, you know, globally, our work changes based on the needs of a particular geography. Um, in Colorado, we're really focused on, as I mentioned, uh, land protection. Um, we're focused on um, the health and, and um, um, security of our forests, uh, as I mentioned, both for water supplies and for biodiversity. Um, we're very focused on um, water, primarily water quantity. Uh, I mean, the mm -hmm. story of water in the West is a story of scarcity, um, sure. but also water quality. I mean, if, if, if you have a lot of water and it's uh, not of a sufficient quality, it's not worth much to you. Um, and increasingly focused on climate, um, both on um, climate mitigation, um, which is a lot of uh, public policy engagement, uh, working at the state legislature, working with partners, um, and adaptation, meaning making sure that you know, some degree of climate change is inevitable, uh, making sure that our lands and waters and ecosystems are resilient to that change. Um, so that is our focus in Colorado. Um, Excellent. And it's, it's a, it's a pretty interesting organization and there's more than 4,000 employees. So it's a, it's a, it it's sounds a pretty it. big place. Yeah. And is it mostly funded via donations? In the U.S., at least, I would say okay. globally, although I don't know specifically, um, sure. we, we do rely on um, philanthropy and um, public investment. So there are a number of state and federal programs that provide grants. Um, for example, just last year, um, there was a, a, a amidst the interesting politics, let's say, um, there was sure. a great success story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Great American Outdoors Act was passed with, with broad bipartisan support. Actually, Senator Cory Gardner was a champion of it. Um, and that, that act ensures that the Land and Water Conservation Fund is permanently funded. And that's basically revenues from offshore oil and gas drilling um, that is funneled into a, an account um, that can be spent on, as it sounds like, the protection of land and water. A good example in Colorado is that um, a number of years ago, actually, the Nature Conservancy, similar to what we did with Fisher's Peak State Park, used Land and Water Conservation Fund to buy the Medino Zapata Ranch in um, the San Luis Valley. Um, that land was then transferred to the federal government, become Great Sand Dunes National Park. Um, oh, so, love it. Yeah. So th there's um, uh, th there's um, there's a lot of different funding sources we use, but obviously we do rely quite a bit on on uh, the generosity of our donors. That's really cool. So what was that new park called that was established last year? Fisher's Peak State Park. So if you drive down I-25, you're heading south. Um, it is the largest. It's a it's a kind of a flat topped mountain uh, on the east side of I-25. So it's the tallest mountain in Colorado east of I-25. Um, and it's this iconic, you know, kind of plateau mountain. Um, it's actually on the, what made it so exciting is that it was really spearheaded by the local community, by the city of Trinidad and, and Los Animas County. Um, and when we went down there for a meeting, there, that had been a private ranch for a, a very long time. I'm not exactly sure how long, but essentially, yeah. uh, you know, many generations. And mm -hmm. the Fisher's Peak is the logo for the city of Trinidad. So the folks that live there grow up Iconic. thinking this is our mountain, but yeah. they couldn't ever access it because it was private. 
Um, so now it's just getting, um, there's investment finally being made uh, at the state level to turn it into a functional park, you know, build yeah, trails yeah. and parking lots and bathrooms and all the things that are necessary. So now the residents can actually go and explore this peak that they've stared at for their whole life. So um, it's a really beautiful spot and I've only briefly gotten to explore, but looking forward to it, you know, when it's, uh, I guess now is actually an okay time, but waiting for more infrastructure to be built, more trails to be built to really get out and spend some time there. Amazing. So the way I understand what you said, it was purchased by the Nature Conservancy. Is that right? And then you and then took it, your organization, and gave it to the state? Is that how it works? So the Nature Conservancy and the Trust for Public Land bought it um, and then sold it to the state. We didn't make a Very profit, cool. <laughs> but we did. So well, we, we did. did. We, it, uh, it depends how you look at profit, right? Yeah, we didn't, we didn't <laughs> take advantage of the state government. Uh, right. We sold it to them for the price we paid. Um, and uh, we, we transferred it to the state. I mean, there were conversations. It was, was, we had hoped that the state would purchase it from us for those purposes. They couldn't commit to it, recognizing uh -huh. they had to make sure the money was appropriated and ready. But, uh, and we continue to be engaged in some of the um, kind of recreation and, and conservation planning to make sure that um, you know, you don't just open the gates and let everybody flood into it. You can, sure. you can try to manage and say, okay, let's not have mountain biking trails in the middle of a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, critical habitat zone for a particular species. So we're working with them. Um, certainly not me, but our, our science team is working with them to see how much we can do to, to try and manage the access, um, for, um, you know, the benefit of recreation without, uh, trampling on, um, you know, sensitive species. Cool. Well, I love it, man. That's so cool. I really appreciate you sharing that. I wouldn't have known if you hadn't said it. So that's definitely you go visit. Have to look into. <laughs> yeah, man, for, for sure. So I'm, I'm curious, what does your day to day look like at the Nature Conservancy as what exactly is your position title? Uh, my title is a natural resources policy advisor, which is about clear as mud, it could do anything. Yeah. So maybe you want to talk about what you do on a day to day or what it would generally be to, like to work there, how the organization functions kind of thing. Sure. And, and I would say um, my role is uh, there, there are more people who do much different things than I do at our chapter. So I work uh, in our government relations team um, and, and my portfolio is really focused on on managing our um, state um, policy engagement. So right now, the state legislature is in session. There was a, a delay, understandably, because of COVID to um, allow folks allow the, the legislators to get vaccinated, to figure out how to manage a session in the times we're living in. Um, and they're now back in session. So right now, you know, we have a number of um, bills that are either going to be introduced or, or moving through the legislature that we are um, supporting. Uh, I don't think there's anything we're actively opposing at this point, but that might be the case. Um, so we're working both on the substance of those, working with the sponsors, working with stakeholders um, to provide amendments as necessary uh, or to help bring um, not just our voice, but other community voices to the table to, to support these initiatives. Um, so that's how I'm spending a lot of my time. We also do employ um, uh, contract lobbyists um, who are in normal times, you know, hanging out at the cap the state capitol all the time yep. i think that they're they're as needed right now masked up in and out sure. um so a lot of my time is spent on stakeholder meetings on kind of political strategy meetings and then having conversations with legislators and partners to ensure that some of these proposals move forward and these things are everything from um appropriations to invest in the management of our forests governor polis has prioritized uh, wildfire mitigation and response, which good call, which, yeah, which is, um, per, it's always been important. It, it's easier for people to recognize just how important it is after what was, uh, the worst fire season Colorado's ever had. So that's a priority for us. And then also, um, you know, more technical changes related to there's a tax credit in Colorado for the donation of a conservation easements we're working on, um, issues related to that. There will be a suite of legislative proposals related to the implementation of the state's climate goals, which were passed uh, in 2019. Um, so we're engaged in some of those to provide um, direction to the agencies to uh, promulgate certain rules, to create incentive structures for um, users to become more energy efficient, things like that. So that's a lot of my time. Um, 
And as I might have mentioned, my other, you know, my, my background is also really in, in water resources, not in the uh, science of it, but in the legal side of it. Yeah. Um, and there's always a lot of conversations about uh, the implementation of Colorado's state water plan, um, which was drafted in 2015 under Governor Hickenlooper. And it kind of provides a, a framework for how um, the state can um, move forward in a time of scarcity and make sure that there are sufficient water resources available for um, vibrant cities, for productive agriculture, and for healthy rivers, streams, wetlands, et cetera. Um, so working with the agencies on, on that, making sure um, that you know, we feel that there is sufficient um, focus and investment being made into the um, environmental and recreational values that water provides. Um, and we spent quite a bit of time working on trying to generate new public dollars um, for implementation of that plan. So we worked with um, the Colorado River Water Conservation District, which is a special taxing district that covers most of Western Colorado. They were very successful in raising a mill levy for investment into water resources, everything from agricultural infrastructure to conservation to um, stream health. Similarly, on the front range, the St. Brain and Left Hand District, um, which is kind of Lyons down to Longmont area, uh, were, were also successful. So trying to find examples of translating people's um, underlying recognition that water is important in a dry state like Colorado into um, voting in supportive measures to actually support it. Um, so we, we spent a lot of time figuring out how to, how to message it and how to get people to... Um, take action uh, for water and other conservation values. Yeah. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for what you're doing, man. I think this stuff is is really important. And I, I appreciate you taking some time to come on and speak with me and kind of give us a little bit of background details, because obviously I don't think these behind the scenes kind of stuff is very publicized well. So it's good to get your perspective and speak with you. I guess on our next topic, I'm curious, this is something I've kind of been exploring in the beginning of the show. I was talking about the difference between the top down and the bottom up approach to fighting just generally climate change. But I'm, I'm curious how you think the impact of a a nonprofit will compare to a for-profit organization that is specifically focused on environmental issues. Because what I'm kind of trying to do with my climate change realty business is inspire other entrepreneurs to create corporations that are for-profit in, in order to make the world a better place and change the economy from the bottom up so it works more for people rather than just shareholders or profits. So I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely the right question. Um, and um, there, there, I think there will continue to be a role for, for nonprofit organizations. But like you said, what we need to do to be successful is to embed these changed practices into the way that everybody does business. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as, a, as an example, we're partnering with an organization called the Colorado Forum, uh, which is a, a group of um, civic and business leaders in Colorado. Um, and around this, um, we've created this Healthy Colorado Initiative, which is really focused on how can the conservation community, the business community come together to make sure that Colorado is meeting its, um, its climate goals. Mm -hmm. And that's really exciting to see. And this is, these are not necessarily businesses that are designed to address climate change. They're traditional, they're, you know, banks and um, developers and their understanding that um, for them to continue to be successful, um, we can't have a climate crisis. We can't have the no. economic shocks that that's going to create. Um, at, you know, if you're a real estate developer, you want to make sure there continues to be a water supply. Otherwise, people aren't going to move to Colorado if um, you know it's it's uh, Mad Max Thunderdome looking out here. Like we need well to make put. sure. Well put. <laughs> I'm not sure it was, but we need to make sure that. Um, we, we continue to think about climate risks and, as you mentioned, some opportunities, whether it's um, growing um, um, renewable energy businesses, battery storage businesses, um, uh, looking at, I am clearly not an entrepreneur because I don't have a bunch of other ideas, but I think you're actually <laughs> right um, that we need to find a way to transition to that greener economy. Um, and 
the other piece of it and something that there's a lot of interest in, and I would say um, limited success so far is figuring out also how to bring kind of the investor class, not necessarily the philanthropic class, but the investor class into mm-hmm. this space to say, um, you know, would you be willing to invest in something with a lower rate of return that you know does something good? Um, so how can we, I think I, I'm, I am not in that investor class, but I feel like sure. a lot of folks have you know, a small pot of money that they recognize this is my philanthropic account and I want to do good with this. And they have a larger amount that they want to make money with. That's completely reasonable. So how can we link those? How can we kind of blur the lines there to say, you can invest in things that do good um, and and maybe bring with it a smaller rate of return. So figuring out that impact capital, that impact investment space is something that I'm very interested in and hope that there are people with, you know, economic and finance backgrounds that can figure it out. But I think that that's the direction we have to go. So it's not just the philanthropic dollars, but it's the, you know, it is part of how businesses do business and part of how investors spend their money, not just um, for causes, but for, again, if it's investing in renewable energy, you're not just hopefully making money, you're also making the world a better place. Yeah, and I love that. And I think that gets into a, a very deep rabbit hole discussing how the economy <laughs> currently works that we're just going to go ahead and breeze over and talk about <laughs> something that you'll know more about, which is the 30 by 30 plan in Colorado and sure. what kind of uh, how to create benchmarks so we actually achieve what we're looking to get. And just explain, Aaron, what what is the 30 by 30 plan for someone who doesn't know what it is? Yeah, so um, 30 by 30 is um, a global goal, I guess, mm-hmm. um, to, and I'm going to use both of these words because I'm not sure which one is right, but to conserve and protect um, 30% of the world's ecosystems, lands and waters um, by 2030. Uh, and I think it's important to think about it as a global plan um, that needs to be kind of appropriately scaled down. So what is um, you know, a representative 30%. The goal is not just to carve off 30% of the state of Colorado. It's to make sure that we're prioritizing the right lands and waters. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not suggesting that 30% of Colorado or 30% of the world should be wilderness. It's, it's identifying a broad definition um, of protection. Everything from public lands that are managed in a variety of ways, certainly national parks, but also Bureau of Land Management lands, forest lands, where other activities are allowed, but they're still managed for multiple benefits, including conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to make sure that there is representation and protection of a broad suite of ecosystem types and that those ecosystems are uh, identified uh, in ways that will be resilient to a changing climate. Um, as I mentioned before, management is key. It's not just you know, you, you put a fence around it and you, you know, you wash your hands of it and walk away. We're going to have to continue to manage these landscapes. Um, and, and that's, I think, a lot of where the, the private land conservation comes in. If people have an interest in maintaining these lands for their own economic self-interest, uh, you can align that management with conservation value um, rather than making sure that, I mean, there is absolutely a, a, a real need for public ownership. I mentioned state parks and federal lands. But you need to have a mosaic with private lands as well. Um, and something else that, that you know, I'm thinking a lot about, I certainly don't have the answer to it, but making sure that there's a, a focus on, on equity here, that we're not just protecting um, lands that can only be accessed by the rich and famous, but that we're protecting lands that provide um, values to human populations that are underserved, um, and that we provide access to a, a, a broader suite of folks who otherwise don't get an opportunity to go outside. So I, that might be my commentary. I'm not sure that's part of the global um, focus, but we're looking forward to the Biden administration putting forward some, uh, I think there'll be an executive order or some kind of guidance. And I know that um, there's a lot of interest in Colorado mm-hmm. in similar, similarly identifying what does this mean for Colorado? What kinds of lands are we talking about? What are the tools that we need? Um, but I think it's a, it's a good goal. I mean, that's 2030 in a vacuum. Sounds like a long way away, but you know, it, it'll be here before we know it. The other thing that I think is important, you mentioned benchmarks, is identifying how much, how far are we towards. It's not 30% more necessarily. 
mm-hmm. and Colorado Absolutely. has, yeah, Colorado has done an excellent job with Great Outdoors Colorado, GoCo, which already invests in um, everything from land protection to local parks. Um, we also have a conservation easement tax credit that incentivizes more private land conservation. So we're potentially ahead of the curve. We shouldn't stop, but we also should understand what have we done to date and what's necessary to get to 30%. And that's something that um, I think a little more, more analysis is necessary um, to figure out where are we, where do we need to get, um, and then really refine the places um, that are most important. Yeah. And I, I think it's so essential, obviously, because I have a background and I've been studying extinction. And, and if we were to protect these lands, less creatures would die. But I'm, I'm curious for someone who doesn't pay attention to any of this stuff, maybe they've spent their whole life growing up in New York City and it's pretty displaced from um, forests or from open space. How do we get the everyman, the person to care about issues like land conservation, water conservation, destruction of biodiversity. What are your personal thoughts on how to foster the, these, um, this care that you and I both clearly have, but we live in Colorado, you know, where we're surrounded by nature. How can we get this into the minds of everyone? Cause you know, nothing's going to get done without everyone working together. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the million dollar question and, you know, in a vacuum, um, if you ask somebody if they, you know, if they care about nature, most people aren't going to say no. Um, but understandably, if, if you're asking people who are really living paycheck to paycheck and trying to put food on their table, it's, it's unlikely that this is going to, you know, protecting a ranch in Southeastern Colorado mm-hmm. is a high priority for them. And I don't blame them. Rightfully so. Uh, yeah. And, and so it's, it's figuring out, um, one, um, why does this matter to somebody living in um, you know, Denver has some of the worst air quality in certain, you know, I think it's kind of Northern Denver, the Elyria Swansea neighborhood has terrible air quality, um, from some of the, um, kind of industrial facilities, you know, North East, I guess, of Denver. Um, that doesn't mean those people don't care about it. We're actually working, uh, to, to, you know, kind of green those neighborhoods. We have a urban program focused on, um, it sounds very small, but planting trees to provide, um, you know, to, to address local climate, uh, issues and, and, and heat issues. We need so, momentum. Yeah. And, and it, it is, it is a really slow process, but I feel like in order to get those communities to care, um, we also need to care about the issues that are most critical to them. Uh, I am not an expert, but if there are human health issues that they're suffering with, if there's economic issues that they're suffering with, I think the conservation community has to come to them and say, how can we help you address these issues if we want you to care about our issues? Uh-huh. Um, and, and I, you know, this was many years ago I, I, when I was at Environmental Defense Fund, um, Van Jones actually spoke to this, um, to a, a meeting we went to, and he said it much more eloquently than I did. But um, I think that we need to come together, not just always say, why aren't these people caring about conservation and climate change? Um, but to say, you know, it needs to be a coming together where we're both working on issues of mutual interest. I mean, conservation, certainly for the nature conservancy is not just, you know, protecting wildlife, it's protecting nature, which includes people. So if people are, are unhealthy, if people are struggling, um, in their own ecosystem, you know, they're not finding the, the food and shelter that they need in a way that's sufficient. Um, I'd like for us, to also um, find a way to support them. We don't need to be in the lead. There are other organizations that are um, much more experienced that have the appropriate expertise, but I'd like for us to come to them rather than just saying, hurry up, vote for what we think is important for us to kind of come to them and, and find a way to build that partnership and build that trust. I love that. And it's so undeniable. The more I talk to people about the environmental issues that everything is just connected to the way we live and, and the society that we are um, continuing to allow to, to go on. I don't know the word I was looking for is, is evading me. But when it comes to us kind of living more in sync with nature, which I think will get us to care about the environment, care about each other more, what changes to the way we behave at the current moment do you think are most like pertinent? What are some things that we could change right now? That's a really tough question. Um, 
Just off the top of your head. <laughs> just off the top of my head. I, um, you know, I, I, I struggle to, um, to figure out what easy changes there are. Um, I think that let's just talk about Colorado for a moment. I mean, a lot Definitely. of people that live in Colorado live here um, because they care on some level about nature. Even if they don't get out to the mountains, they like looking at the mountains. They think it's mm-hmm. beautiful to live here. Um, there are other people who, you know, their lives are built around it. You know, their, their job is secondary, lucky for them. And they spend as much time as possible. I wish I did you know, skiing and biking and, and climbing and all these things for those folks. Um, maybe they recognize how important it is. That doesn't mean that their, um, actions are always as I'm not criticizing any of them, but it doesn't mean that they're quote unquote doing everything they can. And there's others who grew up here and this is what they know. And, um, you know, I, I think it's incumbent on the conservation community, um, to improve our, messaging about this rather than asking people to change. And I think, you know, climate equity, climate justice um, is one of the most critical issues we're facing as a society. Um, And, you know, the the, the people that are, for example, being hit the hardest by COVID-19 right now are also the people that are, that are currently and will be hit the hardest by climate change. So focusing on that, that social justice element, I think is Mm -hmm. the right way to focus because those people's livelihoods um, are to me, the most important things that we need to be focused on that we can't expect global change. Um, if we're not making sure that we're addressing those local impacts. And if you're focused on those local impacts and making sure that those people's lives are better, um, then I think, you know, those of us that can, uh, hopefully will continue to do more, but I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I just, no, think you did. That- yeah, I yeah. think we need to focus on the on the on the social justice and the equity piece of it um, before asking people to change what they're doing. Um, most of the change that is necessary, frankly, <clears throat> is at the macro scale. I mean, as far as climate mm-hmm. goes, we have to reduce emissions. We have to have more electric vehicles on the road, and that's not something yeah. that you or I, you know, I'd love to buy into it. You know, all of I pay an extra couple bucks a month so that all of my electricity comes from wind. I feel good about it. Mm-hmm. I'd love it if everybody did that, but not everybody can afford the extra. No, they bucks. can't. So that's we have to change the system so that it's um, it is as you were saying, it is cheaper or the same price to do what's good for the environment rather than asking people to constantly, you know, especially those individuals that are living in, you know, economy apartments. We can't ask them to pay more to do to fix uh, the the climate that they had nothing to do with screwing up in the first place. Sure, sure. And yeah, the word I was looking for before is perpetuating a system that doesn't make sense. And I always go back. I, I can't deny it, man. I'm influenced by Marvel. We, um, Uncle Ben, you know, great power comes great exactly. responsibility as yeah. the, the privileged white men that we are. That's why I feel such a strong responsibility to help. And I'll be honest, at the outset of this journey, I'll call it, when I started looking into these issues, I was skeptical of the relationship between social justice and environmental justice. But the more I look into it, the more I see how everything is connected and how we do have a responsibility to foster a better world for everyone. And it's extremely depressing that the, 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 the people who are perpetuating the system are hurting those at the bottom inequably. In, in, in like the, the people who have the least impacts get the most who make the least impacts get impacted most by these issues. And again, another rabbit hole, just figured I would share my thoughts to end this podcast. We're going to talk about something that you actually know a lot about, which is water conservation. So just, let's just talk, (laughs) let's just talk a little bit about what, what is, how do we conserve water? And doesn't it all just like go through the cycle and come back anyways? Aren't we good? No. So um, at, at a high level um, you know, Colorado is, um, it's a headwater state. Um, and the Western half of the state is in the Colorado river basin. Um, you know, it's iconic river flows from Colorado, Wyoming down used to get to the Gulf of California. Now very rarely actually gets to the sea because we're consuming so much water, um, in, in all the States. Um, and of course we have other big rivers. It's always interesting kind of thought exercise to recognize that 
if you're living in Boulder and Denver, the, the South Platte, um, the water that's originating here and ends up in, in New Orleans, which is somehow blows my mind. Maybe it's an obvious thing to some people, but yeah, that's quite a long journey. Um, so, you know, the, the, the story of the West is really written in water to, to, to steal a term Love it. Um, that we early on settlers were encouraged to come West, which at the time was this inhospitable landscape, um, in part by saying, if you and your friends and family invest to pull water out of these deep canyons <clears throat> to put it to a use on the plains, to farm, to mine, um, you will get a property right. Um, so if you come here at 18, whatever, you get a better right to anybody else, uh, which is a different system than in the Eastern United States, because otherwise I'm going to come up a year later and divert water from 10 feet above your structure and take, take all the water in the river. So you have to have a protection. So that, that's the, the, the genesis of our prior appropriation system here, which is that those who have been using the water the longest have the best right to it. And that's true in the local scale. And that's also true at the basin scale. Um, so California has been developed and developing for much longer than, than we have at a large scale. So they have much more water and they get their water before everybody else if there's a shortage. Um, so to your question about how do we conserve water, um, it, 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 there's no easy answer. There's no silver bullet. It's not, you can't just... Um, invest in infrastructure and fix the problem. In order to use less water, you have to really use less water. You know, most water is used in agriculture um, and those agricultural uses also in many cases provide kind of secondary environmental benefits. So not only do those agricultural users have a property right in the water, have a business interest. So you can't just say, turn off your water, don't, don't grow grass for cows, don't grow corn. Um, that would be like me saying, Hey, how about you just move out of your house? That's, you don't need it anymore. We, we need it more than you. That's not an acceptable solution. Um, but there does have to be a systemic change at, at the large scale, um, in order to address these, these shortages. So absolutely. As somebody who grew up in Tucson, Arizona, I remember oh, yeah. in between my Saturday morning cartoons, um, Tucson water had a, had a creature called Pete the beak, which I think was a duck or a bird. <laughs> And he told you to beat the peak. So don't use water. Don't water your lawn in the middle of the summer day. Take short showers. Turn your water off when you brush your teeth. Absolutely. Everybody should do that stuff. Um, but, you know, 80 or more percent of the water that's used in the West is used in agriculture. And that's not to vilify them. They're using wow. it for beneficial purposes. They're growing food and fiber and economic value. Um, and the cities are the ones that are growing. So similarly, the cities are growing. And the pressure is on agriculture who have just been doing what they've been doing for a hundred years. So it's figuring out how do we provide a system to compensate those agricultural users for improved efficiencies and reductions in use um, so that the whole system doesn't break so that the cities can continue to grow. Although arguably there's not much more water, if any, for them to grow on. Um, and if you live in Colorado, you live here because you like driving, you know, if you've ever driven down, um, to Aspen from I-70. I mean, that valley, those green fields are really pretty. And you're seeing those green fields because people are irrigating and have been doing that for 50 to 100 years. So there's no easy answer. There are a lot of conversations at the Colorado River basin level about um, what's called demand management. So finding ways to invest in kind of rotational reductions in water use in the agricultural and the municipal sector um, to reduce stress on the system. Um, because if there is a, another year, like we had this winter where mm -hmm. we're not getting enough snow and the soil is so dry that even when we do get snow, it's just being soaked up into the soil, which is needed. Um, the system's going to have a real, there's going to be a real economic impact because arguably Colorado is going to have to send some of its water to meet interstate obligations. And we probably don't have time to get into all the details, but no. there are economic uh, impacts. Um, we generate hydropower at the big reservoirs, Lake Powell and Lake Mead. If there's not enough water running through those turbines, um, a lot of users, particularly in Arizona and California, are going to be struggling to find alternative power sources. 
Um, so that's going to be a problem. Uh, a lot of the revenue that's generated from those hydropower contracts actually goes back into investments that are necessary for infrastructure improvement and the protection of endangered fish. So there's kind of this cascading effect that if we don't get ahead of it, um, there will be economic consequences, there will be environmental consequences. And, and the conversation right now at the state, the federal and the interstate level is about how can we proactively figure out a solution? How can we manage the chaos rather than just waiting for this slow moving train to hit us? Um, and that's a whole nother yeah. podcast, but there's a lot of smart folks working on the issue. And um, we've got, you know, kind of the next couple of years are the, are the critical time. Point taken. And yeah, I should definitely talk to some sort of water specialist, which I don't even know the word for, but is it actually, so even if we were to reduce our usage significantly, is it still a, a finite resource water? Would we still inevitably run out eventually? Yeah. So in, yes, I mean, it is a variable resource uh -huh. um, because the water we're relying on, if you look at the Colorado river basin, it is the water we have in a particular year is based on the amount of, of snow and precipitation we get that winter. Correct. Uh, and that water, that, that snow slowly melts and, and um, flow, you know, becomes flow into our rivers throughout the um, summer. Mm -hmm. um, we've artificially changed those systems. So we also capture water in a number of reservoirs throughout the system so that we have kind of a buffer. So it's not just, you know, all the water is melting in July, we actually can slow it down so that there's water supply available through, through the year. Um, but year after year, are, if you ever look at some real iconic pictures of Lake Powell and Lake Mead, and there's these what look like bathtub rings around those reservoirs, um, that's because those reservoirs are 50% or less full. Um, and every year they're dropping. Um, because we are using more water that is annually coming in. I mean, picture your checking account, right? If you're spending more that's money, <laughs> then you're then it's coming in. That's not sustainable. That's not a system you would, you know, you, you don't want to have uh, a lot of water debt, which is what we have. And you can't borrow money. Uh, there's always somebody who talks about, we're going to build a pipeline from the Missouri River, or we're going to and this has actually been proposed. We're going to, you know, get uh, an iceberg from Antarctica and, and pull it down on a ship and then melt it. I mean, there are some marginal ways to kind of work around the, around the edges here. I mean, we, we probably will start investing in more desalinization uh, on the coasts and, and that's very energy intensive. Um, and there are environmental impacts to the coast. So it's not perfect, but it might need to be something we explore. It's something that's explored in, in the Middle East in particular. Um, water reuse is something that we do want to see that, uh, you know, right now there's a lot of water um, that is used in cities um, that could be treated to appropriate standards for certainly for irrigating lawns. And then in some countries, you can treat that water back to drinking water quality. That kind of has an yeah. ick factor for some people, but Reusing that. that water <laughs> is something that we need to think about. But the reality is, and we also need to invest in our, in our kind of watersheds, in our forests to make sure they're holding the water. Sure. But in the end, we have to use less. It's, it's just, again, think about it as a bank account. Absolutely. We're, we're drawing more out of the account that's coming in. There, there's no easy solution, except you, you just have to go on a budget. Um, so, so we need to figure out a new water budget. Um, and we kind of know the target. It's just a question of what do you cut? Um, and it, it's as easy as that. Do you, do you, you know, are you, are you going out to dinner less <laughs> or are you cutting your rent? But some of those things have to change and to make it more difficult that, you know, that water is all owned by somebody. The, the right to use that water is owned by people who, um, you know, they're not bad actors. Uh, and we have to find a way to compensate them for, reductions and we have to tighten our belts. We need to take shorter showers. It all matters. Um, but yes, in the end, we are consuming water. Crops are consuming water. It's transpiring away. And as the climate is changing, um, we already allocated in the Colorado river system in 1922, when they divvied up the water rights, we allocated more water than was annually available in most years. Of course we did. And now it's just getting drier. So we, we, People, you know, the state of Colorado has a piece of paper that says you get this much water 
that much water is never going to be available. So we have to figure out how can we, how can California, how can everybody just use less um, because there's less available and um, there's economics and there's politics and there's environmental issues involved. Um, but we'll have to figure it out because we can't just let the system crash. There's um, too many people, too many economies uh, that are dependent on that river flowing. Um, so it'll be painful, but something's got to give. Yeah. And, and we will figure it out. And Aaron, thank you so much for coming on today. I've, you've definitely inspired me. I've done a couple ocean episodes. I'm definitely going to want to do a freshwater episode after discussing this with you, talk about like the science behind water, but just, uh, just to conclude, I'd love to get your advice for any young person who's listening. How can they get involved with these issues? What would they rec- What would you recommend they do? Uh, Cause obviously we've got a lot of work to do and we're going to do it. We're going to get it done. We'll be good, but it's going to take effort. So what, what advice would you give to people in the younger generation? Well, um, on the water side, because that's kind of my passion, I would say go Truly. read The Emerald Mile. Great book about the history of the Colorado River. And it's a story about boating the Colorado River that's kind of tied up. So that's a great place to start. Um, and, and honestly, just be curious. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm now kind of working in the policy space. Um, and I, this is me admitting what a, what a policy geek I am, but I love it every November when I get calls and texts from my friends saying, what do you, what should I vote on this proposition? Cause it's complicated. And I, I hope that people listening are, are willing to, um, to take a step back and realize that it's complicated and ask the questions uh, and try to get involved. And if you care, you don't have to be an expert. And if people shun you because you don't know all the details, which happens in a lot of these spaces, don't be deterred. It's about caring and it's about um, being invested in something. You'll figure out the details along the way. So we just need more people that are curious and say, I care about climate. I care about water. Uh, ask the questions. And um, people who work on this stuff like to talk about it. So hopefully, you know, we'll continue this dialogue. And, and on our end, the kind of policy wonks, we need more people like you to, to kind of set us straight when we're way in the weeds as I probably was in this conversation to, to set us straight and say, just say it simply, it you know, great, man. how can we be better communicators and, and you'll help us do that. Yeah. And we, we can always become better communicators and thank you so much for coming on today, man. It's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed speaking with you and I just really appreciate you, man. So, so really thanks a lot. Yeah. Thank you, Ethan. This was fun and um, hope to chat again. Very good. We'll do. All right, everyone. And we'll be back next Thursday. Have a fantastic weekend. Take it easy. Thanks so much for listening to Changing the Climate, a podcast hosted by Climate Change Realty, the most innovative real estate corporation ever conceptualized. Visit ccrboulder.com today.